Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, Breathe In, Write Out, a podcast for high school, college, and university students about making the most out of academic life. We touch on study skills, student life, career transition, overall well-being, personal development, and other topics that impact young adults. At the end of each podcast, we send our listeners off with a short guided meditation and writing prompt. We hope that through these discussions, meditations, and writing exercises, we can build an open, caring, compassionate community that supports personal growth. I'm Lisa Fow, the founder and CEO of Fow Academic Writing, where we focus on teaching young adults the communication skills necessary to reach their full potential on the page and in life. Get into a cozy spot, grab your pen and notebooks, and let's meet our first guest. This week's episode is about making a transition from high school to university. For many students, this is their first time being away from home, living in a big city, and being around so many other smart, competitive colleagues. It's a major transition that seems to either go well or terribly wrong over the course of a year. It's important to be mentally prepared for this transition and take advantage of as many of the campus resources available in order to set yourself up for success. This week's guest is David Zarnett, the undergraduate student advisor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, as well as an experienced lecturer on global security, human rights, international cooperation, and war and peace. As the undergraduate advisor, he helps students address the many challenges they face during their undergraduate studies and helps them to prepare for life after they graduate. He is passionate about empowering students of all abilities to be successful on their own terms. Welcome to our podcast, Breathe, Up, Breathe In, Write Out, David. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, welcoming me to this. You're very welcome. So um, you're a little bit of a renaissance man. I know you do a lot of different things. You have a lot of talents. Can you tell us a little bit about your own education and professional experience? Sure, I think, I think a Renaissance man is a bit of an overstatement, but I appreciate the, uh, the compliment. Um, so in terms of my education, I, I have an undergraduate degree in history from Queens University in Kingston, um, a master's degree in Middle East history from King's College London in the UK, and a PhD in political science from the University of Toronto. Um, so I transitioned a bit from history to political science, and if that comes up, that could be a, a topic of conversation if it's, if it's relevant. Um, right now, I serve as the, as you mentioned, uh, Lisa, I serve as the undergraduate advisor in the Department of Political Science at U of T. Um, I've also been a lecturer over the last few years. Um, so at the St. George campus um, of U of T and at the Scarborough campus as well. And in January, I'll be teaching a course at the Monk School of Global Affairs for MA students. Okay. Uh, so that's, my, that's the first time I'll be doing that. So it will be, it will be an interesting challenge. Um, I also have uh, one foot outside of academia, which helps me uh, stay, stay a bit sane. Mm -hmm. um, I've served as the executive director of a, of a small advocacy organization called Every Kid Counts. Um, that organization campaigns on behalf of children with disabilities to improve special education policy in Ontario. Okay. Um, 
I, I've also done some work for mental health consultancies, uh, namely one small, great little outfit, very energetic called Starts With Me. Um, yeah. And I also love doing some journalistic writing. So I've written for The Globe, the Toronto Star, Maclean's. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that's sort of my life in a nutshell. And you know, beyond that, I have this passion for working with shelter dogs, which actually helps me oh. relate to students. And I, I feel like the dogs give me a lot of insight. Which I'm not sure this will come up, but I do talk about it with, with the students I meet. Um, but wow. yeah, that, that's my life in a nutshell. Okay, so I'm interested in this dog thing. Mm. How do dogs give you insight into students? And this, the students could interpret <laughs> this as, an, as insulting. So how did it start? I, in the second year of my PhD, I started volunteering at the, Humane, the Toronto Humane Society. Um, I was quickly uh, sort of connected with a very experienced volunteer there who, who taught me how to work with some of the more challenging, uh, dangerous dogs in the shelter. And her whole method was, um, it's about mindset and attitude and relationship and trying to figure out how to connect with these, with these, with these, and with these dogs um, who were going through a very difficult transition in their life. Um, right. And a key point that she'd always make was we asked the dogs to be a whole host of different things, calm, um, you know, not anxious, enthusiastic, um, mm -hmm. have an ability to regulate their emotions, focused. Yep. Um, but, but are we any of those things? So the, it's sort <laughs> of her story, her, her, her approach, and I'm very close with her now, and she's one of my mentors, is... Um, to not ask people to do things that you yourself aren't doing and to really focus mm -hmm. internally. And then when you do that, you get a whole host of, I think, positive outcomes. So right. the dogs are brutally honest. They tell me exactly how I'm flawed and inadequate. And I, and I take that message to heart. I, you know, I lie in the fetal position and I try to, <laughs> I try to, to take the next step. And I'm always, I always like the learning. It's difficult, but it's, it makes me better. And I feel like when I talk to students about that, about, taking responsibility, digging deep about what right. you, you need to be, not thinking anyone is going to save you, not blaming others right. as best you can. I think there's some sort of some positive outcomes in the, in the end. Hmm. From that. that's, a, that's really interesting. That reminds hmm. me of, so I studied Chinese politics, Chinese history, Chinese philosophy. So, hmm. and I really go to Confucius for a lot of um, my inspiration. That reminds me a lot of, um, that teaching style because it was it, it was very much like it's about teaching by example so if you're if you're the teacher and you're not doing what you're saying or being the way you want the students to be then you know you're not really teaching it's it's more about character than it is about like the lecture you're giving the students that's kind uh -huh. of like the confucius philosophy and the goal of Confucius is that one day the student will teach the teacher that's the ultimate goal and shows that like you know you've done your job so kind of interesting you learn that from dogs I don't know do dogs do you ever I don't know how that would work <laughs> so it so yeah no Lisa I think what you that, that's that's spot on it's if my, if my understanding of Confucius is right it's a lot about role modeling yeah. um, like how being that person you need to be um, 
the, well, like students, I mean, students are brutally honest in many ways. They may not always tell you verbally, but I know from, I'm, I, I guarantee in your experience, I know in my experience, I can tell when students are disconnected or bored or confused. Yeah. They may not admit to it. Yeah. Um, but it's reading that body language and figuring out, okay, um, what do I need to do to, to reconnect with the student? And, I, and the nice thing about, I think, that mentality is it's not so much about, like, technique of teaching, mm -hmm. like, specific pedagogy. It's more about the attitude you bring to the table, the, mm -hmm. the energy, the vibe. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I found that has, and, and, and I would love to hear if you think the same way. Um, is it a, do you find it's the best teachers are technically sound or do they have the right attitude towards sort of cultivating, like you said, uh, student teachers, like teaching teachers in the end? Well, I mean, I, I'm more on the side, I don't know, but my, um, I'm on the side of it's, it's more about, yeah, who you are and how you approach the situation because now I've been teaching what, like 20 years kind of on and off, not in the same sort of formal um, setting as much, but <clears throat> I think no matter how well thought out your lesson is, it's not going to go exactly as planned. And then you're going to have to sort of think on your feet. Mm -hmm. based on like how you're reading the room so yesterday I was teaching grade 11 English to a class in Beijing online and my first activity was just to play the simple game two truths and one lie so you just come up with two true statements about yourself one lie and then we have to guess it was kind of like an icebreaker game so it's pretty simple, right? If I gave that to like grade 11 students in Toronto, they could probably think up answers pretty quick. But I realized I gave him a little bit and I, I called on a student and then he couldn't answer. So I realized, wait a minute, these guys need a little bit longer time to think about it because their English level is not um, where I initially expected it because the first time I taught them, right? Um, and it's probably easier for them to think and write it down and then do the activity. So I kind of on the spot had to judge the room and then say, okay, you know what, we're going to write this down. And then it went pretty well because <clears throat> they could also read it off their paper and stuff. Yeah. So that's just like a kind of example of, I think, yeah, you have to kind of go in with a certain attitude of you're not, um, you're not, you're not like above the student. And you're kind of working with them toward a common goal, which in this case is like learning how to read and write English literature, you know, read English literature and write essays about it to communicate better. <clears throat> right. Um, so yeah, I, I, think, I think it's more about empathy than it is about going in with like, you know, all your ducks in a row because someone's always going to ask you a question you don't know the answer to mm -hmm. that's right <laughs> happens all the time <laughs> so um david why don't you tell us a little bit about your interest in foreign policy in the middle east for any students out there mm. who are kind of you know interested in similar topics 
Uh, okay, so this, it's actually funny you asked me this because I feel like those interests um, are of like a younger version of myself. So um, I do have interest in, in foreign policy in the Middle East and I guess, uh, you know, my formal training in political sciences and international relations and I've written on um, what they call foreign policy activism and I've written on the, about the Middle East. Um, I, I think today those interests aren't so front and center. I think I'm sort of tired of the news a bit and, I, and that's something we can talk about. But um, I, I guess I can give you my the, bit of a background from that. So I, I, I'm a, I, I come from a, a Jewish family, not religious, but in that sense, the Middle East, Israel, Palestine are sort of in the air, in the water. You grow up with thinking about the politics of the region. Um, okay. So it was, all, it was sort of always around. Um, and I had taken a few classes uh, as a history student in the Middle East and was starting to realize the, the controversial aspects of, uh, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict within the Jewish community. Of course, there's vibrant debate, but sometimes you're not exposed to all sides. So going out um, to, to a university campus where there's going to be a whole host of different perspectives, um, that piqued my interest in the conflict. I'm, my personality is I'm drawn to controversy. I like sort of like navigating a controversy, figuring out why do people disagree so strongly, so vehemently uh, on, on, on a particular issue. How do they come up with these conclusions? What's the different types of evidence they use? Um, so that made it really appealing in addition to the sort of the personal connection I had. Um, I also came of, I think, quote unquote, like political age uh, in 2003 with the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So that was, for me, um, the first time I really start to think about politics and ethics and the left-right political divide and where do you stand on a certain policy decision and how do you justify that stance? Um, so that, that, those two things really put the Middle East uh, on the radar for me and I start to study it through my undergrad and then I, I took a, you know, I have a master's in Middle East history and then a whole bunch of stuff um, uh, through the PhD and I'm currently writing a piece with a colleague of mine um, on the Trump peace plan that was published uh, earlier uh, this year in January. So it's still part of my, part of my uh, interests. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is uh, my dissertation came out of uh, discussions that we're sort of having in the Jewish community about, about Israel-Palestine. So um, for the students who are listening, sometimes you, know, you can use your background, you can use your community to find uh, interesting social science questions, interesting mm. history questions, interesting psychology questions. Mm. They can then go about and research in sort of a formal um, uh, way as, a, as objectively as you can. Often sort of the communities are, are, are not entirely objective, um, mm. but scholars can strive to be. Um, and I think one thing I've really benefited from from the PhD is the ability to apply um, the tools of social scientific inquiry to really controversial questions um, that, that sort of engage a community. So that's where that comes from. Interesting. I never really thought of it like that, but I think it's similar for me because I spent a lot of time in China with friends who were Chinese Canadian. And yeah, I think a lot of the question, my research questions were based on different experiences. Mm -hmm in the community so interesting. Right. yeah so i let me, let me maybe i can just specify for one minute what, what i mean by that in, in case this helps students listening um 
So in the Jewish community, there's a claim that the activists who um, mobilize to criticize Israeli policy are motivated by anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's a very controversial claim. Mm -hmm. And that's an empirical claim that you can test using evidence. Mm -hmm. So I went out for my dissertation and decided, you know what, I'm going to talk to a whole bunch of different activists mm -hmm. and try to figure out what motivates them. Mm -hmm. um, and using like different comparative techniques and looking at different examples and different case studies and using statistics, you can, you can sort of empirically test that at major claims that communities make. Um, so yeah, like, like your, your experience, uh, with, uh, you, there's a whole host of really interesting, not only questions, but hypotheses that could be the subject of, of interesting research projects, whether in first year as an undergraduate or as a later year uh, aging PhD student. <laughs> But I really like I really like that point of encouraging students to draw from their own knowledge or experiences mm -hmm. first to develop questions and then go to you know the academic journals or books or put together some sort of field research or something like that. I think I think a lot of times students have a hard time figuring out what their research question should be and thinking there's like a, a better question. Well, there, there are different, there are definitely better ways to formulate questions, but you know, one topic is maybe better than the other. I really think when people study things they're passionate about, they're interested in, they know a little bit about, um, they do a better job because it's more fun and mm -hmm. it means something to them. That's right. Now, it should be flagged that there are certain costs to doing research on uh, controversial questions within a community. Mm -hmm. So um, there may just be sort of no-go zones for some individuals, um, depending on what the topic is. Um, so the there, ha there is sort of a balancing act between studying things that are deeply connected to you um, while um, not severing yourself from the community, if, assuming you want to be connected to it. Um, so there are always implications. You may find something in your research that is not consistent with what your parents think or what your friends think um, right. or what your community leaders think. And um, so that, that's sort of, that's like the, that's, that could be a negative. That could be, you know, you know, the pursuit of truth, I think sometimes should, I don't know where I stand on this question, but pursuing truth at the expense of social bonds um, that can be very helpful in many ways. Uh, that's, that's something that a person would have to decide what's more important to them. Right. Uh, so there's I also that's, think that's, that's part of growing up. Don't you grow up and figure out, oh, what your mom and dad said maybe isn't exactly what I think now? Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, I think if you're a curious, growth-orientated, critical thinker, you're just going to run into that whether you're doing research on a specific community or question anyway. Mm -hmm. it's, it's maybe just knowing about how to navigate it, to navigate the different opinions and perspectives in a way that's not, um, yeah, breaking down relationships. For sure. Stuff like that. Hmm. So what, what kind of drew you to the role of undergraduate advisor? And what do you find most meaningful about it? Um, what drew me to it? So 
I've always been interested in, in mentorship. I've, I've benefited from having, from having great mentors in my life who's, who've taken a real sort of keen interest into my life, how I'm approaching it, what I'm doing, how I'm addressing challenges, how I deal with failure and rejection. So I think in my like quote unquote, quote unquote DNA, there's this desire to, to, to sort of pay that forward, to, yeah. to, to mentor in the way that I've been mentored. Um, I'm also sensitive to not being mentored uh, effectively. So I started my PhD at the University of Oxford and I left after the first year, um, primarily because I felt like the, the, the learning community for me wasn't what I needed. Mm. Um, I wasn't sure I was able to articulate in the way I could now, but I felt like I wasn't being provided with the, you know, what I would call like the hand holding I needed at that stage <laughs> of, my, of my knowledge base. I didn't really know yeah. anything. I was transitioning from history to political science. Yeah. It's slightly a different language. It's a different discipline. There's a lot of overlaps, but right. they're different. Um, I didn't know what I was doing and I felt a bit too much on an island. And the way that university is structured is it's very independent. Um, U of T is incredibly into any graduate program. I mean, any university education is very independent. Mm -hmm. um, but as you go up the layers, it can, it can be even more isolating right. um, in, in terms of the own sort of specific work you're doing. So I was sensitive to mentorship and thinking that, you know, it's, it's important to, for students to have a person they can go to just to you know have have a chat about some of the things they're struggling with. So I really value that role. Um, I, I, in a weird way, I feel like it's ethical, even if I don't always do the the best job that I can. I feel like it's it's an important role um, for me, and I can I can go to bed at night sleeping like you know I can think like hey, maybe I'm not a total jerk. Um, so there's that. Um, the other thing I like about spare time, we don't want to know. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so the other thing I like about the position is um, I like how it's, and this, this may be good advice for, or, or something for the undergraduates on, on the line to think about, is finding um, like non-hierarchical sources of advice. Mm -hmm. So as a lecturer, it's harder to give the type, have the same types of conversation with my students because they right. know they're graded or assessed. Yeah. Maybe they'll ask me for a reference letter at one point right. or I'm judging them as are they smart, are they not, yeah, they, all that stuff. Right. When they just come to my advisor office or now it's, you know, now it's online, there's no, you know, there's no assessment. It's just oh, sort of a more honest conversation. Um, I really like that. I think that's very useful for students. So students should go out and seek that. Um, it's just um, like what I do. <laughs> right. That's right. It's very similar because it's like, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I can understand what the professor, the university or college wants, but I'm not grading them. Mm -hmm. So I'm just like, so what's going on? What do you think about, you know, what do you want to do? How should we do this? What's happening in your life? It seems like, so like a, another big piece of what I do is I try to hook students up with um, supports because they're often struggling with different things that are affecting their um, you know academic performance I, I imagine you often I don't know are you doing something similar to that like what how do you help students um, a lot of it is so a lot of it is 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 one-on-one -on -one discussions um, I, I make that's what I 
that's where I feel like I can be the most effective. I also run a, a number of events through the academic year. Right. I bring in speakers. So I know, Lisa, we have a few coming up, which I'm very excited yeah. for. Um, and I, I like to introduce students to people who are doing different things to allow them to network, to, to meet people who are, who are working in government, uh, to learn about jobs, to learn about what grad school is like. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do a lot of that, but I really prioritize the one-on-one -on -one, uh, interactions because U of T is a huge place. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's easy for students to get lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. um, so if they know that there's someone out there they can talk to, someone they have, you know, some type of personal connection to, I think that can, I think that can help a tiny bit. Um, or at least that's the, the myth I've told myself. <laughs> well, no, I mean, in my experience doing that, but in a different sort of role outside the university, I think it makes a big difference. I, and I imagine, I don't know if you're like me, but I, like my students, I will have relationships with them for several years, maybe that they are in school coming back and forth to get help from me for different things. But even after they graduate, I try to keep in touch with them every so often, see how they're doing. And um, I think that kind of mentor or adult, you know, that relationship means a lot to them from what I hear back from my clients or whatever because they don't feel alone. Just like what you were saying, the U of T can be a big, or any university, it's, it's very different from high school. You're suddenly just a number, you know, the teacher doesn't even know your name unless you make an effort to go and uh, speak with them during office hours. So it's a, it's a very different, more isolating experience. And I, I also really like, and I was, a, I didn't, I wasn't really totally aware of this, but I, I really like how you put together these different events and try to connect them with people in the quote unquote real world or doing different things. Cause in my own experience, especially, yeah, I think undergrad too, but grad school is, you know, when you go to graduate and you kind of ask your supervisor or, or people you um, worked with a lot, some ideas about what should I do next? You know, what are the opportunities and options? I mean, obviously you can go to the career center too, but um, at the time when I was in graduate school, there wasn't, there weren't those kind of talks. There weren't, it was very, everything was very academic. So if you wanted to do something that wasn't um, academic, it, it was, it was a puzzle to everybody in the institution. So it's really cool that you're kind of bridging that gap. I agree. I think it's, um, I think that access, seeing different career pathways that are not just um, acad academia. Um, I think students are very worried in fourth year because they have no idea what the, what the mm. next step is going to be. What does it even look like? What do you, what's a policy job? What, what types of jobs yeah. can a political science student even apply for? What should they be looking for? Um, so just meeting a few people, I find to be very, I found that to be very effective. Um, even if the student is totally disinterested in what they, what that person does, right. it can help them create that list of, of options um, and ideas. And maybe they revisit that, 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 that type of job later in their life. Um, but, but yeah, giving them a sense of those options of those ideas that are out there beyond the university setting, I think, 
I think is very important. So yes, we, I, I totally agree with what, you're, what you've been saying. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. That's like the next step yeah. for universities. Um, so you've been in school a long time <laughs> and you're still actually in school. Mm -hmm. um, what has helped you over the years to succeed, however you define success? What are some tips you might give like a first year? Um, okay, so I think, I think the biggest thing that's helped me is having, I think there's a book with this title, I've not read it, so I may be taking an idea, but having this beginner mindset, um, it, it sort of calms me down, it lower, it, 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 it reminds me that I'm here to learn, that I don't always have to get things right, and that I should just be open and humble in the face of a complex world and over, overwhelming amount of information. So once I think that I'm a beginner, so if I'm starting, even, even now when I'm starting a new research project hmm. or writing a new paper on a, on a policy issue that I don't really know it's kind of about, but I'm sort of, you know, you know, animated by, or it, or it gets me, something's gotten me annoyed and I got to research it, that type of thing. <laughs> um, that's usually how I select my, my idea. It's like, oh, that, that pisses me off. I guess. anger factor? Yeah. It's like, it's not an yeah, it's like. Annoyed and frustrated. I'm going to learn about it yes um or like oh my god i feel like everyone is wrong um but i don't know if they're wrong but i want to figure out that type of <laughs> um so I, f I find just being thinking like a beginner um helps me be better and more focused on what i need to do um it keeps me sort of in that in that it it keeps me in that right space of of of, of learning and taking things step by step um, so when I get a new dog, for example, if I get a new shelter dog, um, I go back to like just basics, like, okay, just take information. You're just a beginner. You don't know this dog just yet. Mm -hmm. Um, learn over time and build up expertise in this specific area, mm -hmm. um, and then transfer it to another. Um, mm -hmm. but sometimes expertise can come with arrogance and can come with ego and right. uh, things that can get in the Long way. Of yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Always. Always, always. <laughs> so, um, you might lose so that, your job after this. No, just kidding. <laughs> so that 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 so the beginner mindset, I think, is one thing that I think we should all, and that's a lifelong um, approach. That's not something just for our first year. That's the MA students. That's the the tutors, the professors. Um, it's everyone. I think the other thing that really helped me was um, the saying that no one is going to save you. In that um, it doesn't mean no one's not going to help you. Right. But there's only like I I now know, and I'm sure Lisa, you've experienced this. There's only there's so much there, there's only so much a teacher can do. Right. Um, you can be dead on in how you assess a student's writing abilities. You can be mm -hmm. really connected and just incredibly coherent in that hour or two hour session. Mm. The question then becomes, what does that student do with the knowledge you provide them? Do they go off and do they think about it? Do they take notes yeah. during the session? Do they take some time after to think about, okay, what did Lisa or David just tell me or, or what, whoever teacher, what, what, what have I just been told? Um, so it's that work ethic, it's the personal responsibility over your education that I think distinguishes the, those who are, who are more likely to be successful from those who are less likely to be successful. Um, mm -hmm. 
that, yeah, that no one is really going to make the difference for you. You have to go out and, and, and do it. And that includes seeking help. That includes seeking right. leadership and, and going to educational consultants and tutors and professors and, and, and everything, getting what you need. Right. Um, and often the beginner mindset allows seek help if you don't think you're a beginner you're not likely to ask someone for for assistance so they all sort of weave oh yeah um so true yeah like when i feel like oh i'm you know i'm i got this covered i'm good at this then i um i sort of you know i don't set myself up to be a successful wow sorry i'm just taking it that's so i'm gonna use that yeah that's so that's so true i think i find that in myself Mm-hmm. When I think I'm supposed to know something, I get nervous about asking questions. Yeah, and that, and to your point, that's that's the ego, that's the wall coming up. Yeah, and that us from you know connecting with someone who may have that information, uh, being open to to new information, things. Well, like I think that. it's the fear of judgment. I think you hit on something really important that beginner mindset because it kind of takes away expectations, like. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first, well, second time I went to China, but the first time I went to China to learn Chinese, thought I knew Chinese. Nobody knew what the heck I was out. I mean, I could say hello. That's the only thing they could understand. And um, so I basically was like at zero. (laughs) And it was really uh, overwhelming and scary, but I knew it was at zero. So I just like dove into it, you know, and by the end of the year, I had worked myself up like second semester, I got into an intermediate level class. And I don't, I don't think there were any other of my classmates there. And by the end, like, by the second time I went back to China, I was in advanced Chinese. But um, interestingly, the second time I went, I didn't do as well because I think I had expectations on myself of I should know this. Right. And so I would be more scared. I would be more afraid to fail all these different things. So I I, I was kind of like struggling and I didn't progress as much. Now it is harder to progress faster once you get into like higher levels of anything. But there was definitely something about the mindset that made a big difference. So I think that's huge. It's just every time you approach a new thing, realize you're a beginner. And I, and I wonder if that's where beginner's luck comes from. Maybe. Uh, that we have just a different approach to a new, a new something new. Mm-hmm. We're more calm about it. And when you're more calm, you're more likely to, right. to do well. Well, we have, a, brain talk, more open, we have so. a podcast coming out um, on resilience with one of my classmates from my master's who is a life coach. Mm. And what she talks about is um, exactly that. When you feel, I mean, it's kind of a different version, but it's essentially when you feel kind of like calm, like, okay, I can figure this out. Like, I'll figure this out. Um, then you'll take more risks and you'll do better. And it's kind of like when you're a beginner, you're like, okay, I'm going to figure this out because like you don't have any other choice. When I was in China, I don't figure it out. I starve because I can't survive in the cafeteria with the gazillions of people crowding and grabbing the food. I have to be able to tell them what I want. Um, 
so really interesting. I like that observation. And and beginners beginners also ask better questions mm. because once you if you if you don't know anything, you ask like these really fundamental points that that intermediates that don't don't want to ask because it's signal right. it may signal like exactly. So I think like the true beginners in my classes, they've asked these like really penetrated, they think it's just a really simple question. It's like, what is democracy? I'm like, oh God, that is a very hard question. <laughs> that is so fundamental. And um, you know, it's, so the, sometimes the best students are those who are just like, I know nothing and I'm here to figure it out. Right, well that's um, what Socrates said, right? Right, uh, yeah, okay. I'm gonna go back to that. Yes. The crazy guy in his barrel or whatever. Dirty, crazy guy going around Athens pissing people off. Right. Um, so, okay, those, those two things helped you succeed. What are some challenges you met, um, maybe especially in undergrad, that, you, that maybe some of the current new first-year students might meet or identify with? Um. Okay, so my, uh, this was now 14 years ago, almost 20, yeah. Um, okay, so there's a, there's a few ones that I think a lot of people talk about, um, like balancing social pressures with um, like the responsibilities of a student, confronting new perspectives and, and differing opinions on campus. Not everyone's gonna agree. So how do you manage that? Time management, I think is a big one. But I think the most important, or the, the thing that, that really, that I struggled with, um, and I will continue to struggle with it, is dealing with um, some type of like academic failure. So I remember my first year poli-sci uh, poli class, political science class, 101, I remember exactly the room. I think I must have got like, a, a six, like maybe a 58 or a 60 in the class. Wow, the same thing happened to me. <laughs> that was, yeah, and, and so I tell students, I actually, I like the, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm very lucky to have had that experience because I can now tell students who come to me saying like, oh my God, I screwed up my first year classes or my second right. year classes. Like, don't worry, so did I. And now I managed to get a PhD. So if an idiot like me could do it, so could you, you'll be totally fine. Um, so I felt like um, that, that was the biggest challenge. I mean, I was like a decent high school student. Yeah. Um, you know, you sort of do well, you're not, you're not particularly, you're challenged, but you're not really challenged. Um, that type of, that type of, uh, that type of situation. And then you come to university and you have a very harsh TA um, <laughs> who says nothing good about something you've written that you've worked hard on or calls you out for not working hard on something that you know you have not worked hard on. Yeah. Um, that's also, so suddenly things become far more honest and a bit more brutal. And the question is, what do you do? in the face of that? Do you get mad at the TA? Do you get mad at the professor? Or do you say, okay, what did I do to not be successful and how can I increase my chances of success the next time? Now, inevitably, the next time you're still gonna, or at least in my case, I still didn't, it takes me time to learn the lesson. Mm -hmm. uh, even if I identify the lesson early, it doesn't mean I assimilate it into my behavior. Um, so I think that was the big thing. And I think a lot of undergrads experience that where the first paper they get back, um, the first exam they write, uh, they just don't do as well as they expect to. Um, and suddenly they're getting 60s and low 70s when they're used to getting high 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a great thing. I remember having a meeting with a student years ago where they said, oh, I, you know, Dave, I just got 
just got rejected from my first grad program. Mm. And I think I said, like, good. Like, this is an opportunity. Um, I, I, I wasn't happy about it. Like, I, I wanted them to get in, but I was like, this can actually be used in your favor. How do you deal with a door closing in front of you? What do you what's your strategy now? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it emotionally, intellectually? Um, what are you going to do for next time? What are the lessons learned? So that is, I think that's the biggest thing. That's the, that's the challenge, dealing with a, mu a much harder, brutal reality um, and environment and then yeah. uh, strengthening in the face of it and, and doing what you need to, to overcome some of those challenges. Hmm. So kind of, since we're kind of on that topic of assignments, what would you say is the difference in writing essays between high school and university? Okay, so... Um, I struggle, I struggle with this question only because I'm not sure what high school writing is um, anymore. Uh, high <laughs> sorry? You blocked it out. That's right. Um, so if, the, I guess, I guess at, the, at its most fundamental level, the major difference is it's higher quality. Writing is the reflection or the manifestation of thinking mm -hmm. and a reflection of a thought process and how someone thinks through uh, a difficult question. So at the, I, I think the major difference, or the mo most fundamental difference is, it's just at the university level, it requires higher quality thinking, more rigorous thinking, more, more in-depth thought, more time to think about exactly what a question is getting at and how to answer it. Um, and for me, university writing, I think captures or really reflect, or good university writing I think requires something like, I mean, maybe three, three components. Mm. Um, one would be a sensitivity to the reader's needs. And I'm okay. not sure that happens in high school, but for university, it's, you start, you're writing for other people. How do I make sure that the, my reader, namely my grader, understands exactly the question I'm asking, my argument, um, what I'm trying to, what my objective is in this essay. So I think there's a heightened sensitivity to making the, your ideas very clear, uh, presentable, logical, uh, well-organized. I think that, that's audience. to your audience. Yes. Know your audience, which is important for any writer. That's right. Any that's right. It's, it's all writing. That's 100% true. Um, the second thing would to be have a core argument that's, this is obvious, that is backed up by, by solid evidence. Um, right. How do you know something is true? Or how do you know some, I don't like the word true. How do you know something is valid or reasonable? Um, just because, um, you know, someone you respect has said it, said it, how do you know what they're saying is valid? Um, what's the, what is the specific examples, statistics, um, historical uh, case studies that you can draw upon to substantiate your point? So evidence really matters. Um, that, that I think that's that's that may be a, a difference between high school and university writing. Yeah, and I, I think, think the major difference. And I think the third would be um, a, a fair and reasonable engagement with counter arguments. Um, so when I assign, when I grade papers, often the difference between a like a, a seventy or an eighty is the extent to which the student thinks about alternative arguments to their own and why those arguments are not as compelling as the one they're trying to make. Hmm. Um, so they, that's often the, uh, and that, that goes back to a sensitivity, sensitivity to the reader. Um, how do I convince my reader that I'm making a reasonable case is I also think about all the things that would be popping up in their mind. 
So I've made, I've answered a question in a certain way. Well, what, what would a critic say? What would, what would, a, what could another answer be? And why, why is that answer more problematic than the one I'm, I'm providing? So I find that engagement with counter arguments with different perspectives to be very important um, and it has to be done in, in a sort of a, a reasonable and fair way and it's accurate and respectful of that different position, uh, but that deals with it in, in a sort of a, a critical and evidence-based manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to tell the students, it's like if you imagine all these, these important people sitting together in a room talking about this topic or question what would this person say what would that person say which side are you more on and why are you more on that side so don't forget about half of the room like the half of the room is still there you have to acknowledge them even if you disagree if that makes sense yes 100 percent. i like that a lot i may i may take that from you <laughs> okay I don't know, a lot, a lot of times I imagine maybe what it was like in ancient Greece. Yes. <laughs> and I would love to have a school where you just walk through the garden and like talk about things. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, so since you're an undergraduate advisor, you've been in the university a long time. I'm sure you're aware, I hope you are, <laughs> of the numerous resources that are on campus and that help students to succeed. What would you say is a resource that is extremely valuable that's, but students often don't know about it or use it as much as they could or should? Um, okay, so I think there, uh, there are two. Um, one are, or one is, um, professor's office hours. So going back to what I said about seeking out non-hierarchical forms of uh, sources of advice, that's, yeah. that's, that, that is something students should look for, but also they should go to their quote unquote superiors, their, their teachers, and talk to them about an assignment, talk to them about a lecture, ask them questions. Um, I often encourage students who are thinking about grad school to go ask their professors about their graduate school experience. Right. Uh, or what it's like to go through grad school applications. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is the, um, I think that's a hugely untapped resource. I see so many professors, I've been in a situation where we're just sitting in our office yeah. and, and no one comes and I'm like, where is everyone? And They're you know, I'm the one, yeah. And, 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 They're scared of you. You know how many times I hear yeah. my students say, well, I'm scared, I don't know. Are they gonna say this? Are they gonna think bad about me? So let's demystify this right now, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how to demystify the fear. I mean, I think it's, yes, there, there could be, there's a, there could be a whole host of reasons why that's the case. Um, no, but I mean, the fact that you're scary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not, if you're sitting there in the office hours, what are, what, like the professors sitting in the office hours, like, why are they there? What, what are they actually thinking when a student comes through the door? Because I think there's, I think there's a myth or an idea that they don't want to be bothered. That, you know, only the students who really need help go to see, go to the office hours or something like that. Right. Well, th this goes back. To the, I mean, th th that's an interesting point about fear of judgment. The, I think the stu I think students in this case, if if they feel that, they should just 
say, well, there, there's two things. One, I'm more interested in, in taking the actions I need to take to pursue the education I need. So there's that. There's, so that can give you some sort of courage. Like, I don't care what this person thinks of me. I need to go out, of course, be respectful and get the information and the help that I need. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm going to be judged for asking questions about an assignment, then that's not something I can control. Right. Um, the other thing is, you'd be surprised at how many professors um, enjoy speaking to students, um, having them ask questions, getting to know who they are, um, right. having the students signal to them that, yeah, you know what, I've actually, like, I've listened in class, and I may not participate a lot because I get nervous in front of a lot of people, but I've thought a lot about what you said, Professor X, and you know, I, ha- I thought maybe I can ask you three questions um, in the next 10 minutes. And, this is, and that's a great way to build a connection, to feel connected to a class. Um, you know, it's the, on the other side of the, the lecture hall, the, the professor is also quite insecure about what the students think of yeah. him or her. Um, I'm always up there thinking like, I'm like, oh my God, am I, am I making a fool of myself? Do I have like chalk on my back? Do, <laughs> like all, all this stuff, we're all, in, we're an insecure species. We're sensitive to judgment. And I think students should know that, you know, professors are humans too, who also have these, who are flawed. They have these emotions that, um, and often what can seem as, you know, some sort of social awkwardness can often be just really attributed to some degree of insecurity. Um, so I would say to students, be courageous and be brave and go out and get the information you need from your teachers um, uh, and know that it's a good, it's a good strategy. Um, if the professors know you, if you're getting direct insight from the person who's designed the course and designed the assignments, you're more likely to, to do well. They're great repositories of information. Of course, there's going to be some professors that you just really don't like and just don't connect to and that's and that's that's life that is you're gonna have bosses you don't like you're gonna have a whole host of people in your life that you just don't want a lot to do with mm-hmm. but if you can find those people that you do like um try to cultivate that relationship it's not always easy it's like sort of a you know the first date it's, it could be awkward and, and scary but you sort of necessary you got to do it so yeah so office hours the other thing i would say about untapped resource uh on campus, it, I mean, I, I sometimes have issues with getting students to come out to my events. And often these events are... At all. Sorry? I, I think in general, what I've heard is it's hard to get students to come to events, unless yeah. it's like a Halloween party. Yes, so, or a law school event. So students will come to the law school event, but they won't come to um, like a nuts and bolts session about how to apply for an internship at Queen's Park. Mm. So. That and I feel I feel like you know for the undergrads who are here if they go to U of T if you go to U of T if you go to any school look into all the the workshops and seminars that are being run um, because they are just an amazing source of information you get to know about scholarships international study opportunities right. jobs how to apply for a job um, I meet with so many students in fourth year who have not done have not been exposed to any resource U of T has to offer. And at some point, I don't even blame the university. Um, I don't necessarily blame the student, but um, there's some degree of inaction on their part that's really holding them back. So I strongly encourage students to go to events, build it into their schedule. It's an hour or two of your week. There's free um, food you bought a lot of times. Now it's online, exactly. but usually there's free food. 
it's always worth it. And you always feel a bit better about your life when you're taking action. Mm-hmm. Like think about the hour at a, at a sort of a job seminar versus an hour on YouTube. Mm-hmm. What are you going to feel better after? Um, That's you know, a good point. So thinking about what makes you feel empowered and energized about your life, given all the madness going on, um, I think that's important. And to try to do as much of that as you can. Mm-hmm. So those events are part of it. They'll, they'll make you feel connected to your school. You're going to meet other people. You can network. Um, they're, they're great. So I, I do struggle with getting more students out. Um, but that's the reality. That, that's, that's also a, it's a big campus dynamic. There's a lot going on. Yeah. 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 So I really like those two points. I, I like the go see the professor, talk to them. Something I want to add, because um, my friend Danielle was on here, we interviewed her, and um, she's a professor of psychology, very friendly woman. And just to um, think of it more like this, this is not some super smart, I mean, they're smart, obviously, but not some super smart, genius, amazing person they're just a person and why are they teaching you this and no more than you because they've been doing it longer it's that simple they've amassed more knowledge by practicing something for 10 to 20 to 30 maybe 40 years longer than you so you don't need to be intimidated by that that's just reality right it's just it's just how it is and um yeah, I really like that thing about going to the talks. I think one thing that can be overwhelming for students is the number of talks. And mm. so I kind of encourage um, some of the people I coach to just commit to doing one workshop a week or something. Just like once a week, do the workshop, go to it. Sometimes it won't be good. Sometimes it'll be great. But you're like putting yourself out there. And that's really important for like your whole career. You have to put yourself out there. And I don't know about you, David, but I am actually very introverted. <laughs> and so putting, doing this podcast and everything was scary. But um, I still do it. It's good practice. And, and when they're over, how do you feel? Uh, I feel good, but also I feel less scared the next time a challenge or a new opportunity comes along. Mm-hmm. So I, like, I very much learn from, I'm more of an experiential learner. I'm sure a lot of people are, but like, even me going to China, like that was, I'll tell you, I think, I don't know if I said this on another podcast, but when I started undergrad, I used to cry every night because I grew up in a small town and I went to Edmonton for school. So it was the first time really kind of being away from my family for a long time and I would see them maybe once a month. And so for the first two weeks, I cried myself to sleep for every night. But now I live on the other side of the country from my family. I will travel around the world and I'm totally okay. And it's just from like that exposure that kind of like slowly challenging myself into and putting myself in these different kinds of situations. So it's kind of, it's the same thing with workshops. If you don't like networking, I don't like networking either. I hate it, but But you just kind of go, you try it, and you'll get better at it, and you'll figure out what kind of, who are the people in the room you might want to talk to. So 
I don't really like to talk to a lot of people. There's some people that give out their card to like 20 people. You know, I prefer if I talk to two or three people and have a meaningful conversation, to me, that's worthwhile. So that's actually how I know David is because I used to work in the poli sci department. I know the person who supervises David and that's how we got connected. So, you know, even if you're an introvert or you're nervous or you're scared, just put your foot, dip your foot in the water. And once you try it, you're going to feel like empowered and confident. And then next time it's going to be easier and easier. It'll still be scary, but it won't be as scary. <laughs> um, I just want to know because we do care about books and recommending books for people to read. What are your book recommendations for students? Yeah, this was this is a um, this is also a tough one. Um, I'd recommend a book called At the Existentialist Cafe hmm. by Sarah Bakewell. Um, it's this great book about a bunch of philosophers, existentialist philosophers who are navigating um, sort of post-war Europe. They're in France, they're in Germany. But the core of the book is about um, the, this idea, this, this existentialist idea that we have a lot of power over the direction our lives take, that uh, we're not necessarily victims, that we have a lot of agency even when the situation is really difficult and, and when society may seem like it's stacked against us, there's always options. There's always things we can do to improve our situation. Um, I felt like I read that book, not only being keenly interested in these personalities and the debates they were having and how they navigated like romantic relationships amongst each other, but also that perspective uh, about living an empowered life, saying that I actually can't, if I want to change my, my how I'm living, I have the power to do so. Um, it may not be revolutionary change, but there's always things you can do um, to take a, a bit of a next step. Like, like you said, Lisa, going to a meeting, making a phone call, talking to someone, asking a question, going to an office hour, applying for a job. Right. Those, little, those little bits, that li exercising little bits of agency each day um, can have a real positive effect over the long, long run. And I felt like reading that book um, I just felt really like I was smiling because it reminded me of that and it gives it felt like I was given a lot of power um, Even if I go out in the world and I make a lot of mistakes, right? Like that's not the point It's about trying and being a good decent person living an ethical life feeling empowered enthusiastic about what you're doing um, and trying not to blame others as, as, as much as you can and taking that responsibility to be I guess a bit of a badass in a good ethical way so thanks for being on our podcast today, David. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was fun. Mm -hmm. It was a great time. You can find out more about David at the University of Toronto Political Science Department website or by emailing him at david.zarnet at utoronto.ca. And we will put this in, like that information in our post when we post it up on my website. Um, I also want to remind everyone to stay tuned for the second part of our podcast, which is a meditation and reflective writing piece to apply some of the lessons we learned during this interview. During this breathing meditation, you will focus on your breath. This will calm your mind and relax your body. 
There is no right or wrong way to meditate. Whatever you experience during breathing meditation is right for you. Don't try to make anything happen, just observe. Begin by finding a comfortable position, but one in which you will not fall asleep. Sitting on the floor with your legs crossed is a good position to try. Close your eyes or focus on one spot in the room. Roll your shoulders slowly forward and then slowly back. Lean your head from side to side, lowering your left ear towards your left shoulder and then your right ear toward your right shoulder. Relax your muscles. Your body will continue to relax as you meditate. Observe your breathing. Notice how your breath flows in and out. Make no effort to change your breathing in any way. Simply notice how your body breathes. Your body knows how much air it needs. Sit quietly, seeing in your mind's eye your breath flowing gently in and out of your body. When your attention wanders, as it will, just focus back again on your breathing. Notice any stray thoughts, but don't dwell on them. Simply let the thoughts pass. See how your breath continues to flow deeply, calmly. Notice the stages of a complete breath. From the in-breath to the pause that follows, the exhale, and the pause before taking another breath. See the slight breaks between each breath. Feel the air entering through your nose. Picture the breath flowing through the cavities in your sinuses and then down to your lungs. As thoughts intrude, allow them to pass and return your attention to your breathing. See the air inside your body after you inhale, filling your body gently. Notice how the space inside your lungs becomes smaller after you exhale and the air leaves your body. Feel your chest and stomach gently rise and fall with each breath. Now as you inhale, count silently. One. As you exhale, count. One. Wait for the next breath and count again. One. Exhale. One. Inhale. One. Exhale. One. Continue to count each inhalation exhalation as one. Notice how your body feels. See how calm and gentle your breathing is and how relaxed your body feels. Now it is time to gently reawaken your body and mind. Keeping your eyes closed, notice the sounds around you, feel the floor beneath you, feel the clothes against your body, Wiggle your fingers and toes. Shrug your shoulders. Open your eyes and remain sitting for a few moments longer. Straighten out your legs and stretch your arms and legs gently. Sit for a few moments more, enjoying how relaxed you feel. 
and experiencing your body reawaken and your mind returning to its usual level of alertness. Slowly return to standing position and continue with the rest of your day feeling re-energized. everyone thanks for listening to our interview with David Zarnett um, I hope you got a lot of useful tidbits out of it that will help you to make the most out of your post-secondary education experience so while David was talking he he really picked up on a few things that I liked in terms of saving yourself and kind of life being a series of choices and kind of empowering yourself and stuff like that. And that reminded me of a book that I'm almost finished listening to called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. When I first saw the title of this book, I was like, I don't know, this sounds dumb. But I really, really like it, and, and I recommend it. Um, <clears throat> so really, it's kind of just like a philosophy on life. So I recommend checking it out. Meanwhile, what I'm going to do for the writing exercise today is I'm going to read a quote to you. And I want you to reflect on this quote. And then I'm going to ask you a few questions to reflect on. So the quote I'm going to read to you is from Mark Manson's book, and the quote is, The desire for more positive experiences is itself a negative experience, and paradoxically, the acceptance of one's own negative experience is itself a positive experience. So I want you to take a few moments, maybe three minutes, and really jot down what that quote means to you what does it make you think about do you agree or disagree like what is he talking about it doesn't make sense so if you need to just pause the podcast okay now that you've kind of done that reflection i want you to try to think of an experience um, that would be perceived as negative, say like a breakup, failing a class, um, maybe even a death, and reflect on now, how do you feel about that experience? Did you learn something from it? So during the interview, David talked about how he totally bombed an assignment in his first political science class and how it actually now he's grateful for that experience because it helped him to learn and grow and also he can relate it to other students. So I want you to think of your own negative experience that you may have gone through and reflect on are there positives that came out of that experience? So again, you might want to pause the podcast, give yourself about five, maybe 10 minutes to work on this. 
And finally, I want you to reflect on, again, the quote, and really what it's talking about seems to be expectations. If you expect to have all these great positive experiences all the time, you're going to feel bad because that's not how life is. So I'm wondering if you can take a moment to reflect on your own mindset and how could you change your mindset to start thinking of negative experiences as something positive or starting to accept them as part of the process of life? What is blocking you from doing that, if that seems crazy to you? Maybe write some, down some things you're afraid of or that you don't understand how this is possible or reasons why you wouldn't want to take on that mindset. You can make a list. So give yourself like maybe three or five minutes. You might want to pause the podcast. Great. Well, thanks for working through those writing exercises. I hope they helped you to reflect a little bit on the content of today's podcast and kind of maybe overall your life and world outlook. And I really hope that thinking more about experiences, are they positive, are they negative, what does that mean, what does wanting a whole bunch of positive experiences, does that help, does that impact me in a positive way? Thinking about these things and thinking how you can kind of change your mindset to accept all the experiences that happen to you as part of your life and try to learn and grow from each one of them. We hope you enjoyed today's show. To find out more about FAO Academic Writing, you can check out our website at www.fao.ca or follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook at FAO underscore Academic Writing. I look forward to helping you reach your full potential on the page and life today. Take care, guys.